Well, it's a privilege to be here with you. Um, unfortunately, it's taken years for Pastor Van and I to reconnect. It's been 17 years since I saw Van and Janet. Uh, but we have fond memories of school. Van has some memories of school. <laughs> I loved school. I have spent 34 years of my life in formal education, not including grade school. And um, it's just because I love to learn, and most of it has been about God's Word, and I hope to share some of that with you. If I would title this message, it would be entitled, Embracing God's Ultimate Purpose for Your Life. What does God want to do in you? And we're going to take it from the book of Romans, chapter 8. And uh, let me summarize Romans 8 for you, and then we'll summarize the entire book of Romans, and then I can leave. No, actually, I have something else to say. But uh, in Romans chapter 8, God, through Paul, wants to teach us about his purpose for our lives. And he does it through a way of trying to get us to understand the direction that God goes. To the Jew, God would speak through signs and wonders. But most of us here are Gentiles. And God does that through a very logical and reasoned approach of getting us to understand what he's all about. If in Romans 8, verses 1 to 4, Paul wants us to embrace our freedom in Jesus Christ. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then in Romans 8, 5 to 17, he wants us to embrace our life by being an heir with Christ. We are inheritors of all that is Jesus, including all that he has been given by the Father. It's ours. I understand that differently today than I did two years ago because I've lost both of my parents in the last two years and I have become an inheritor of what my father left for us as children. And it's humbling. It is sobering to realize that he thought about us um, when what he earned was his. And, and I receive that graciously. God wants to give us that through Jesus Christ. Thirdly, in Romans 8, verses 18 to 27, he wants us to embrace the Spirit's help. Through prayer and through hope, the Spirit gives us something to look forward to. And finally, in Romans 8, verses 28 to 39, he wants us to embrace his ultimate purpose for our lives. So let me, in just a couple of minutes, help you think through the entire book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, Paul presents the unrighteous man. And he teaches us about what we are as sinners. In Romans chapter 2, he talks specifically to the Jew, but to the self-righteous. Those who have the law, but don't live it. In chapter 3, he shows us the condemned man. That all of us are without hope apart from Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, he shows us the believing man, which is Abraham. And he teaches us from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, The just shall live by faith. In chapter 5, he speaks of the justified man and the two Adams. Adam, who was the first man, and Jesus, who was the second Adam. In chapter 6, he gives us the new man and gets us to understand our identification with Jesus Christ. All right, some of you are like, I can't keep up. I've given the notes to Pastor Van. They're only $20 each. No, I'm just kidding. And if you want them, you can get this. So I can just run through this. Chapter 7, he gives us a glimpse of the defeated man. Of what it's like to struggle with our old nature even after salvation. 
Chapter 8, the victorious man, which we're going to focus on today, and how he wants to enable us and embrace that victory. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul focuses on Israel's past, Israel's present, Israel's future. And then in chapter 12, he gives us an understanding of the transformed man. Chapter 13 is the exemplary man who clearly is willing to obey the authority of God's word and walk in obedience. Chapter 14 is the family man, how we are to treat one another as believers in Jesus Christ. Chapter 15, we, are, we see a page too many. The abounding man who gives light to the gospel of Christ. And finally, Paul shows us in chapter 16, the unwavering man, the one who stands and holds fast to the truth. It's my prayer for you that you be the unwavering men and women. And I am just delighted to know your pastor. You are, you are blessed. And if you don't realize that, then repent. <laughs> you need to pray for this man. You need to support him. You need to encourage him. You need to help him. And come alongside both he and his wife. They are precious servants in the sight of God. So, in light of all of that, we... Uh, want to get to what may be the most significant verse for me in the New Testament. Romans 8, 28 and 29. My pastor in Germany used to say that Romans 8, 28 and 1 Corinthians 10, 13 need to be infused by being put into your spiritual bloodstream to get into your head what it is that God wants to do. Because Romans 8.28 says we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. The word know there means to experience that knowledge. That God is at work manipulating everything about your life. He's not causing the pain. He's not giving you the trials. But he takes them and he uses it all to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. And 1 Corinthians 10.13 says there's no testing taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful and will not tempt you beyond that which you are able, but will with every temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God is at work in your life if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to do. We want to see what God's ultimate desire is for you and how that plays itself out in our lives from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 29, or to 39. So, his ultimate purpose for our life is to predestine us to be conformed to the image of his son. Now yesterday we spent time dealing with this. The word predestined is used only six times in the New Testament. It's never used to talk about a person who is unsaved getting saved. It is always used to talk about either the company of the saved or the person of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, and in Acts chapter... Um, Man, you know when you get over 60, things happen. And um, I, I told them yesterday, it's not, it's not my memory that's the problem. It's the retrieval system that needs a software upgrade. It's Acts chapter 4, verse 28. And then he talks about us as believers, and he says in Ephesians 1, 5, that he has predestined believers to be adopted as sons. That's not the, the way that we think of adoption. That's not little kids being brought into your family. It's like West Virginians saying, I'm, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. <laughs> that word literally means to be sun-placed. 
It was a rite of adulthood in Roman culture. Every child had to be adopted. And when they were adopted, they became inheritors and adults in that culture. God has son-placed us and predestined us to be an inheritor of all that is Jesus. And then in verse one, Ephesians 1.11, he has predestined us to be to the praise of his glory. In Romans 8.28 and 29, he's predestined us to be um, conform to the image of his son. Romans 8.30 is actually an ellipsis. And an ellipsis is where Paul doesn't give you all the words because you should figure them out on your own. So I'll try and run through this really quickly. Romans 8.29 says, For God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, Jesus Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren, whom he therefore has predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He's also called to be conformed to the image of his son, and who he called to be conformed to the image of his son, then he also justified to be conformed to the image of his son, and whom he justified to be conformed to the image of his son, then he also glorified. Aren't you glad Paul didn't put all that in there? It'd be a hard time to, to do that. But the point is, God has given us everything that is necessary to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. That is his goal, to make you like perfect humanity. That's what Jesus was, perfect humanity. That's what he is, perfect humanity. And that's what God wants to work out in your life. He does it first by getting you saved. And then as he begins the process of sanctification. He frees you from the very power of sin in your life. And then ultimately he's going to deliver you from the very presence of sin uh, when he comes for us again. So how is he going to do that? Paul says, by embracing his ultimate will for our lives. To recognize what God wants to do, we have to recognize how God has given support to this accomplishment. God doesn't require you just to go out and do something without helping you. Um, You wouldn't do that to your children. You wouldn't tell your children to do something and not not teach them how to do it and and give them the tools that they need to be successful. We We don't do that to our kids because we love them. And God doesn't do that to us. So verses 31 and following, we see that God requires us to understand his support. And this is what he says. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I'll begin reading in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? All right, now I have to stop and give you a quick Greek lesson. Um, We use the word if in American culture to express conditionality. And we think that when we say if, it's a possibility that you might not do it. And it's also a possibility that you might do it. And that's why we use the word if. The Greeks, on the other hand, use the word if very differently. In fact, they have four different ways of using if. And we call those class condition sentences. First and second class condition sentences, positive and negative, from the perspective of the writer, are sure things. Done deals. Facts. They're not conditional at all. And some of your Bibles will translate this, since God is for us, Who can be against us? And the answer is no one. So he's not really expressing that God might not be for you. He's expressing that not only is God for you, but because God is for you, nothing else can be against you. That's his enablement. He says, since God is for you, who can be against you? And then he gives the argument. Look at what he says. 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not also with him graciously give us all things? Then he asks the next question. Who shall lay any charge to God's elect? Is it God who justifies? Who's to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And then he's going to go on and we'll get to the next session. I want to stop here and I want to just look at this. God says that he is for you on the basis, number one, verse 32, of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Number two, verse 32, 33, he is for you on the basis that there is no condemnation to those of us who are in Jesus. He also says he is for you, verse 34, because of the resurrection. And lastly, he says he is for you because Jesus makes intercession for you. Now we have a great enemy. It's called the devil. And the devil is called the accuser of the brethren. And the devil has access directly to God. I don't know why God permits that, but he does. And the devil runs into the presence of God and he accuses us. And he says, you know that Soto character? Did you see what he did today? And Romans 8 says, Jesus stands from the right hand of the Father and says, no, 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 I died for that sin. You can't accuse him. I think when we realize this, beloved, we should come to the place that the Apostle Paul came in in chapter 7 when he says, sin has become unto me exceedingly sinful. God will not let anything be accused to us. We will never again answer for our sin. His wrath was poured out upon Jesus on the cross. And if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, He will never, ever bring up to you your sin again. The Old Testament says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed thy transgressions from thee. He goes on to then give us an understanding of Satan's strategies. Satan has ways to defeat us. And he lists a bunch of them here in verses 35 through 37, 36. He says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And so here's the way he does it. Natural disasters. Shall tribulation. Tribulation here has to do with natural stress and distress. Persecution, man-made suffering. Famine, lack of food. Not a problem for America, but for many other countries it is. Nakedness, lack of clothing. Peril, threat of bodily harm. And the sword, ultimate death. God has marked us, actually the enemy has marked us as God's children, and he intends to try and defeat us. That's why God wants you to know verses 31 to 33 first. Because he wants you to know how he supports you in the midst of that trial that you're going to come to. And Satan is going to try your heart. And there is probably no better way to do it than to get you to doubt that you're his. Um, I have two kids. From the day Becky was born. Actually, from the minute she came out of the womb. Uh, there is no way for me to deny her. She looks exactly poor kid like her dad (laughs) Naomi got a better deal she looks like my baby sister but um, Becky has looked I mean we the genes you just can't deny it 
And that's exactly what Jesus does when he saves you. He makes you look just like Jesus. The answer to the questions, what shall we say then, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger, sword, is no. None of these things defeat us because we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In fact, that's an old song. It was written by Ralph Carmichael. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us so. The Christ who dwells within us is the greatest power we know. How many have never heard that song? Oh, my word. Repent. It goes on to say, he will fight beside us, though the enemy is great. Who can stand against us? He's the captain of our fate. Then we conquer, never fear. So let the battle rage. He has promised to be near unto the end of the age. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us so. The Christ who dwells within us is the greatest power we know. So here's the question. Are you a conqueror? Do you live in the victory of what Christ has done for you? Or do you live in the quiet desperation of struggling to figure out if you're really his or not? You know, so many Christians are sort of like the hamster that George Reed had. He was my next door neighbor. We went to high school together. And George had a fancy hamster cage. It had all kinds of stuff on it, you know, tubes and stuff. But that hamster was really pretty dumb. The hamster did a couple of things. He'd jump up on the wheel, and he'd run, 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 run. Then he'd get off, and then he'd poop. <laughs> then he'd eat. Then he'd get back up on the wheel, and he'd run, 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 run. Then he'd get off, and he'd poop. <laughs> then he'd eat, and he'd get back on the wheel. And You know, that's how many Christians live their lives. They try, 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 try. They sin. They go to church, they go to a seminar, they get rejuvenated, they try, 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 and that's not what God wants for you, brothers and sisters. He wants you to recognize that he has empowered you with the very divine creative power of the Holy Spirit, and he wants to be that power in your life. And the problem is, we don't recognize what God has done for us. So how do we deal with this? Paul says... If you understand that I have conquered, then you need to understand that nothing in your life can separate you from me. Nothing. I have two grandkids. And by the way, for those of you that are in the midst of having teenagers, grandchildren are God's reward for you not killing your kids when they were young. Macy is my four-year-old granddaughter. She is a spunky little thing, and she loves to root in Pops' pocket to get change. Now I know why. She's probably giving it to missionaries. Okay? And, and Macy's one of those kids that, you know, you can really mess with because she's just so determined. And one of the things I'll do when she reaches in my pocket and takes a quarter is I will say to her, Here, Macy. See if you can get it. And she will... And she's four. Even if I have arthritic hands, she's not getting it. Okay? 
I have too much competition to let a four-year-old beat me. <laughs> and, and in the world, John chapter 10 says, you are the quarter, I am the hand, Jesus says. No man shall pluck them out of my hand. But then he adds this, he says, and God, who's stronger than I am, has me in his hand, and no one can pluck me out of his hand. That's what happens when you're saved. You can't even pluck yourself out of his hand. That's what Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39 say. Let's read it. Paul says, For I am sure, I am persuaded, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus my Lord. So nothing that's in this dimension, nothing that's in the angelic dimension, nothing at Mount Everest, nothing at the Dead Sea, not even you can separate yourself from Jesus Christ. You say, well, what if I walk away? You can't. You're in the hand. You know? Well, I don't know. This whole argument is what Paul uses to lead us to an understanding of what we have in Jesus. And he builds to a culmination in Romans chapter 12. And finally he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your logizomai, your logical worship. It's exactly what that translation means. In other words, Paul says, when you understand all this stuff, you don't have any other choice to present your body. Now, we love those terms because we don't understand them. But the word present is translated in the King James, yield. And yield is not something we do at stop signs. That's what they do in California. <laughs> yield is a term that really comes more out of what I think we should think of as medieval history. Because in medieval history, chivalry governed. And yielding was to cease to fight against an enemy. One of my favorite stories is Ivanhoe. In Ivanhoe, you have three main characters who are going to support Prince John. And Prince John is not like the thumb-sucking Disney version. He's actually a king, and he's pretty powerful. And he has three very powerful supporters. One is the Font de Boeuf, the other is uh, Brian Gilbert, and the other is the Count de Bracy. And all of a sudden, the Black Knight shows up with a bunch of weird guys from the forest. You probably know him as Robin Hood and his merry men, but they weren't very merry then. And... Uh, the Black Knight comes against the font, I mean uh, De Bracy, and he defeats him in, hand -hand, in combat. And the Black Knight puts his sword against the neck of De Bracy, and he says, "Do you yield?" And De Bracy says, "I will yield to no one I do not know." And so the Black Knight leans down, lifts his mask just high enough to say, "He is Richard Plantagenet. You know him better as Richard the Lionhearted, returning from the Crusades." And immediately, De Bracy says, My liege, I yield. The next scene is almost 
incomprehensible to us. Because all the guys are still fighting. And they're beating each other. And their swords are flying. But you see De Bracy standing in the midst of that whole scene with his sword in the ground with all of his mighty men behind him doing absolutely nothing. Brian Gilbert comes riding up and he says, we're going to retire to York where we'll take on the king there. And De Bracy says, I can't. I have yielded. I have stopped fighting the king. You see, that's what Paul wants us to do. To yield. To stop fighting the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He wants you to do that if you don't know him in order to be more than conquerors. But he wants us to do that if we do know him in order to be more than conquerors. The question is, will you yield? Will you take what God has given and accept it and embrace it and live in light of it, recognizing all that he has done to support you, recognizing his ultimate purpose is to make you like his son, Jesus Christ, recognizing that even though the enemy is going to try and defeat you, we are more than conquerors through him that love us. Paul wants us to ask the question, will you embrace your freedom in Christ? Will you embrace your adoption of sons? Will you embrace the Spirit's help? Will you embrace that God has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his Son? If you do, then you will walk in a manner worthy of the calling whereby you have been called. And you don't have to worry about your security. That's God's work. You then have confidence because of the assurance that you have in a relationship with him as he empowers you, as he strengthens you, as he encourages you, and as he calls you to yield to his strength. The question is, will you do it? Will you give up the fight? Or do you want to keep testing the king? Father, thanks for our time. This is, without a doubt, one of the most significant lessons we can learn as Christians. How to put our sword down and stop fighting you. Lord, sometimes we act like little kids, throwing temper tantrums. And you have given us everything to stand firm in you. And we just don't see it. Help us. Lord, make us to understand that you have done everything in our lives through Jesus Christ to make us more than conquerors. And we can stand without fear in this world, in the dimension of the angelic, in face of terrible circumstances, even in our own rejection of you And you still hold us in your hand. You hold Jesus in your hand. And you don't let us go. I pray for anyone who's struggling to realize that that's what you've done. And ask that you would just encourage their heart today. Help us to yield that we might be to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said.